Well, this morning, and if you're new with us, first of all, we'd like to say welcome. We're so glad that you're here with us this morning, and you're kind of jumping in on a series that we have been working through called Sin No More, a topical series that we as church leaders felt was necessary to do due to the fact that our culture is changing so rapidly that many, including Christians, seem to be losing the idea of the seriousness of sin. Sin is a serious issue to God. How do I know that? Well, the written word word tells me that very clearly, but there was one demonstration in history that cannot be denied that indicates to me that sin is a very serious subject before God, and that event was the coming of Jesus Christ. And what was required of him to overcome the sins of the world. His sacrifice on a cross. And that's saying it mildly compared to what actually happened to him. So we wanted to gain that seriousness again. We wanted to regain it, rediscover it again. Because as his children, as Christians, we need to hate sin but love the sinner. We need to Look at sin as God looks at sin. So we started this series. And as we are working through this series, as a template, we've been using John chapter 8, the famous account of the woman caught in the act of adultery. Where sin is at center stage, and the question that is posed before all is, what do you do in the wake of that sin? Jesus was at the temple. He was teaching. People gathered there around him. The leaders, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes bring a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. We don't know where the man was. He also should have been brought, but we don't know where he was. And the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus. They tried to discredit him amongst the people and and find him guilty before the Roman Empire by asking what should be done with this woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And the first thing we observed is that no one there, out of all four of the perspectives, Jesus, the religious leaders, the people, the woman, none of them believed that the act of adultery wasn't sin. They were all in one accord. This is sin before God. Now what to do about it? And we began looking at that scenario by seeing how offensive sin is to God, as looking at it from the perspective of Jesus. Then we moved last week and historical study of the Pharisees to understand why they were treating sin the way they were, in a legalistic fashion rather than through a sacrificial fashion. That sacrificial fashion would have allowed for repentance and restoration. But the Pharisees were more interested in killing this woman rather than saving this woman. And of course, Jesus was more concerned about saving this woman than killing this woman. But after our discussion from the perspective of the Pharisees last week, we need then to ask ourselves the question, how would God have us deal with sin as a church? If we are going to maintain in the minds of the people that sin is serious, we must first establish the necessity of how the church handles sin amongst its congregation. Now, some of you may be thinking, oh, I thought that was God's job. And it is. 
I often believe that the best remedy for sin is allow for the grace of God to have its perfect work within that person's life. To let the love of God melt that person's heart so they move away from that sin. They repent and give it unto God themselves and let God do the work in and through them. But there comes a time that there are individuals who are obstinate about their sin. They're rebellious about their sin. They're unrepentive concerning their sin. And the Bible calls us as leaders, as a church, to deal with individuals like that. And so if we didn't touch on a sensitive subject from the beginning, which is sin, and is considered sensitive amongst many people today, we're going to get even more sensitive by talking about church discipline. Church discipline. Some of you guys are like, great, what a Sunday to come. We've been going through the 33 days of praise together as a church, all the way up until Thanksgiving. Different aspects that we can find thankfulness for as Christians. And as I was considering all the things I am thankful for, I had to be honest with myself on how thankful I am for my mom and dad. As many of you know, growing up, when I became a Christian when I was 16 years old, my mom and dad were not believers at that time. My mom, in 2014, just came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And my dad is this close. My dad has already, in the last three years alone, read through the Bible five times. Because he's looking for answers that I believe can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ. This is after 28 years of sharing the gospel with them, praying for them, and trying to be a witness to them. God is finally opening their eyes at this late hour. But even though they weren't believers, I am so thankful for my parents, my father specifically. He instilled in me a work ethic that I'm so grateful for. It just... I'm so grateful as I witnessed and observed his work ethic, I just felt that's the norm as a man to have that type of work ethic. But you know what else I'm grateful for? My dad disciplining me as a child. I believe that it was my dad's even-handed discipline, fair discipline, that has helped me become the man that I am today. I'm so grateful for the times that my dad took to correct me when I was wrong, to instruct me when I was wrong, to educate me when I was wrong, to discipline me when I was wrong. Because that demonstrates love to me just as much as him providing for my needs. A roof over my head, food in my belly, medicine for when I am sick, etc. But he also disciplined me. Teaching me right from wrong. Showing me that bad behavior was going to render consequences that I didn't want to experience as an older man. I'm so thankful for that discipline that my dad brought about in my life. When I became a Christian, I was almost shocked to discover that our Heavenly Father is a disciplinarian also. A loving Father a caring father who loves us too much to leave us the way he found us. And to change us, he often uses the mechanics of chastening. 
discipline. That we may be all that he desires us to be. And he does so out of his great love for us. Because you know, as a parent, that you see your children doing things that are going to harm them in the long run. How can you say you love them if you aren't going to try to hinder them from harming themselves? Of course, discipline isn't fun. No one likes to go through it. No one likes to administer it. Many just want to avoid it from either end. But it's necessary. And it's necessary to be a healthy Christian to allow God to chasten us. In fact, I'm going to say it this way. We often don't have any choice in the manner. When God chooses to chasten us, He'll chasten us because He loves us. And it's for our betterment. But the church plays a role in that discipline at certain times under certain circumstances. And we as a church need to know how that works if we are going to continue to consider sin serious. Now, that being said, I want you to know that... I believe that we have some of the best elders here at this church. I have got to tell you that. These are great men who love you. Who are earnestly and always seeking after God to better lead this congregation. They take it very seriously. But when I read from one pastor who stated this, it caught my attention concerning church discipline. He stated, I am convinced that biblical discipline or church discipline process properly observed would utterly revitalize the church of our generation. That's interesting. Is it possible that today we are seeing so many of the misgivings of our young adults and the way their lives are playing out because they were not disciplined as children? Is it possible? To consider that? Discipline allowing for certain restraints to be applied for our betterment and that our character may be developed as God would have it develop through the course of discipline? Is it true that church discipline would revitalize the church in America? Well, first we have to understand what it is and what it is meant to accomplish. Now, I'm going to be upfront with you From the very beginning, many people are greatly opposed to this practice. And a pastor who taught on this subject in a very fair manner, very biblically driven, a man who has demonstrated that he was a pastor who loves his congregation over and over and over again through his sacrificial efforts as their pastor, After teaching a series on the radio on the subject of church discipline, he received a letter that he believed was indicative of how many people feel concerning church discipline. Let me read to you what this woman said. He shared this letter with us. The whole process of church discipline, she said, sounds incredibly controlling and uncharitable. I cannot believe that any church would ever threaten to excommunicate its own members for what they do in their private lives. I cannot imagine a church making a public pronouncement about someone's sin. What people do on their own time is their business, not the whole church's. 
And the church is supposed to be um, where people can come to learn how to overcome sin. How can they do that if they have been excommunicated? If we shun our own members, we're no better than the cults. I cannot imagine that Christ would ever excommunicate someone from his church. Didn't he seek out sinners and avoid those who were holier than thou? After all, it's not the people who are whole that need a physician. I'm glad my church doesn't excommunicate members who are in sin. There'd be none of us left. I thought the gospel was all about forgiveness. And in her letter, I understand many of her concerns. But she is truly unaware of the biblical process of church discipline. What it is meant to do. How it is meant to be exercised. Why God would require it of us. Now that being said, I want to also state this from the beginning. In our 19th year, this year of ministry, the elders and I have not had to exercise church discipline one time. And I believe it's because that we approached it from a biblical position and and within a biblical manner. It is meant to be used in extraordinary circumstances and situations. But it is something that is meant to be applied when necessary. So as a church family, we need to discuss this. And I'm going to do my best over the next two Sundays to discuss with you the necessity, the purpose, the reason, and the method behind church discipline. And hopefully showing you why it is so important for the health of the church. We begin this morning with why is it necessary? And that begins our journey in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. And I'd like to read this quote before we read our text. These passages that we are about to read lead to the inevitable conclusion that the church discipline is as much of the function of the local church as the preaching of the pure doctrine of the gospel. And the administration of the sacraments, which is baptism and also communion, instituted by Christ. Discipline in the church is not optional, but mandatory. It is absolutely necessary if we are to be obedient to Scripture. Now remember that woman's first concern. that She said that she doesn't believe that Jesus would ever ask anyone to leave his church. Is that true? Is that what the Bible teaches? Now if you've seen church discipline exercised under an abusive hand, Yes, you can get a very bad picture of it. That's not what God intended. It wasn't meant to be used as a method of controlling people and their private lives. That's not what God is saying. You belong to God, not me. My job as your pastor is to put as little or as few fingerprints upon you as possible. You are His. My job is to love you and to feed you and to correct you when necessary when God would have me do so for your betterment and for your advancement. But let us begin our journey here in the New Testament with Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. And we're just going to read these passages first to get a flavor for them. 
If you need to crack your knuckles at this point, I would encourage you to do so, because we're going to do some page flipping this morning. We're going to get you familiarized with your New Testament once again by looking at some different passages together. If your brother sins, verse 15, against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth should be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by the Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. So we already get the impression from Jesus himself that sin must be dealt with in a specific manner. We're going to look at those steps more closely as we continue on in our study, but I want to bring these passages to your attention. Also, if you will, move forward in the New Testament to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which you may be startled to find Paul addressing an absolute circumstance that must be addressed in such a manner. And we're going to look at the first five verses together. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. It has actually been reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And the word and there is put in the English. In the Greek it's and of this certain kind, meaning it's bad enough that it's sexual immorality, but it's of a certain kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. This is bad, okay? The pagans tolerated everything, but this was a taboo even to them what was about to be exposed. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed among you. Here is a young man who apparently is having intimacy, sexual relations with his apparent stepmother based upon the Greek phrasing. And it is being welcomed within the church. Wow. Now what does Paul and Jesus both say in this particular case since they appear not to be repentive, that's what Matthew 18 established. Here it seems to be that this young man is obstinate and he won't repent of his sins, that they are to be asked to leave. First Thessalonians requires a warning, those who are disobedient. In First Thessalonians 5.14, if you take notes this morning, I'll share these verses with you slowly so you can look at them yourself, because they're pretty much one-offs. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. There are those in the Thessalonica church, the word admonish isn't a very good word in the English. It's ones that, it means to warn or to correct. 
these individuals were being disobedient to what they were being asked to do. And Paul says you are in need to, of warning them. In 2 Thessalonians, a second letter to these same believers, Paul suggests warning and, if necessary, withdrawing from a brother. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6-15. I read these to you. Now we command you, brother, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not according with the traditions that you have received from us. For you yourself know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but we toiled and labored, we worked day and night, that we may not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you, the, you and ourselves the example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in this idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies in and of themselves, he's saying. Now such a person we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Even if anyone does not obey what we have said in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that they may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother." So what Paul is saying here is that he is saying that an individual who is being obstinate, who didn't want to follow the apostles' teachings, who didn't want to work to provide for themselves and was pretty much mooching off the rest of the congregation, Paul says to that one, warn him and withdraw from him if necessary, that he may be brought to be ashamed And that word ashamed means that he would consider what he is doing and discover that it is wrong amongst the totality of the gathering, of the assembly. The word idleness that he uses there apparently means without respect for established customs or received instructions as a qualifying cause, meaning that Paul taught it, the church accepted it, the church practiced it, but this individual disregarded those teachings doing their own thing and becoming a problem and a burden to the church in general. Paul continues this line of thought in Titus 3, 10 through 11. For those who cause division, he writes, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once, then twice, the same principle that Jesus laid down in Matthew 18, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, and he is self condemned. Paul went on to describe a further method of exposing such sin amongst those who would not repent by exposing it to the entire church. In the context of 1 Timothy 5.20, where we find a verse that many churches have, I believe, improperly applied in practice, the whole church rebuking an individual. But in the context of 1 Timothy 5.20, it appears to be an elder in the church who is unrepentive, being brought before the whole church and being rebuked by the entire church, as Paul states in 1 Timothy 5.20, for as those who persist in sin, being elders, rebuke them in the presence of all, 
so that the rest may stand in fear. Now these are just the warnings. That there may come a time for the necessity of the health of the body of Christ that we as elders may have to implement church discipline to remind the entire congregation that sin is serious. This is a biblical practice. Now, it must be administered in a biblical fashion. Because I will tell you, being as pastor as long as I have been, I have seen churches abuse this practice to simply conform people to their own image, to simply move people in their own direction, the church's direction rather than God's direction. Secondly, it is so important to understand that if this is neglected altogether, sin can have a devastating effect upon a congregation. For the Bible parallels it to leaven, which we'll talk about in just a minute, which will erode the church from the inside out. So what is the purpose? We found the necessity But what is the purpose? There are three purposes to church discipline. This is so important. Number one purpose of church discipline is to the restoration and the reconciliation of the sinful person. That's number one. This whole process is implemented for the restoration and the reconciliation of that person. Now that's huge. When you go into it with that mindset, saying, we're only doing this for your good, for the health of the congregation, but we want you to repent of the sin, we want to restore you back to fellowship, and we want to reconcile you back into a healthy relationship with Jesus Christ. That changes everything, doesn't it? It's not heavy-handed discipline at that time, it's loving correction at that time. Secondly, It's to maintain church purity. Now, let's be honest. The only way this church is going to be pure is if we all leave, right? Okay, let's be honest. Practically, each and every day, even though we are believers in Jesus Christ, we still struggle with the old nature, don't we? It's a tug of war that we are involved in that will last all the way to the time that we step into heaven. Positionally before God, we're perfect because Christ stands before us. God the Father sees us through Christ. And in that perspective, we're perfect before the Father. But practically, we're still a work in progress, aren't we? God's working on us every single day. You know, no one has arrived to that perfect point of sanctification. I have never been invited to a perfection party. Pastor, I'm finally perfect. Would you like to come to my party and celebrate? I'm sure the Christian bookstores have cards for that. We're all works in progress. The grace of God, the love of God, the Spirit of God, sanctifying us, cleansing us, working from the inside out, conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ, which is an incredible journey in and of itself. So we're not saying anyone is perfect. But for those who want to continue on in sin and are rebellious towards God in repentance of that sin. 
Meaning, I know what God wants, but I don't care. I'm going to do whatever I want. That's a problem. I'm not referring to the person who struggles with sin, whose flesh is weak, who falls time and time and maybe time again. That one Goliath that you don't, just can't seem to overcome in your life, God will see you over that. I'm not talking about a person like that who after they fall then cries out to God and repents and, and, and comes and to the elders of the church and say, I'm struggling so badly with this sin. I'm not talking a person like that. I'm talking about one who is unrepentive and flaunts it in the face of God. Thirdly, it serves as a deterrent for others so that others would understand the seriousness of sin. But restoration is the foremost purpose, number one. As Jesus said, if he hears you, he responds, you've gained yourself a brother. That was what Jesus desired. Paul encouraged the church to forgive and to comfort one and to reaffirm their relationship with them after they had repented in 2 Corinthians 2, 6-8. As he writes to them, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather than turn to forgive and to comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by the excess of his sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love to him. As one commented on this, he says, Now, however, the punishment has proved sufficient for the reason that it has successfully affected the primary end for which all discipline within Christian community should be exercised, namely the reformation and thereupon the restoration of the guilty person back to Christ. Discipline which is so inflexible as to leave no place for repentance and reconciliation has ceased to be truly Christian, for it is no less a scandal to cut off a penitent sinner from the hope of reentry into the comfort of the fellowship of the redeemed community than to permit a flagrant wickedness to continue unpunished in the body of Christ. Reconciliation with the local assembly is not warranted until the turning away of that sin and the apparent fruit of their repentance has been discovered. And when discipline is administered, it's not for the humiliation or the condemnation of the individual it is meant for the correction of the individual that they may come to repentance that they may come back to God and be reconciled with others who are in Christ secondly Paul wants us to know that it's to maintain purity the second purpose of discipline is to benefit the local congregation Paul warns the Corinthians that leaven remember what he said here Turn back with me to 1 Corinthians 5 and let us read a little farther on. For he brings up this subject of leaven. I'll start in verse 1 again. It has actually been reported that there is sexually immoral immorality among you of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Are you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, as if present with you, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Even though I'm not there, Paul says, I have determined this man needs to be dealt with. When you are assembled in the, same, in the name of the Lord, and my spirit is present, 
with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Wow. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Thank you, Paul. As you really are unleavened, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, uh, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What is he saying there? Wow, Pastor, I, I didn't realize that was in the Bible. The Jewish people, before Passover, each and every year, needed to cleanse their house from leaven because leaven was a type of sin. It was meant to symbolize sin. In fact, when we had the Passover feast here at Calvary, we demonstrated that uh, that's what God was doing. He was preparing His people to recognize sin as leaven. And what leaven would do, they would have a leavened loaf of bread. And leaven is the yeast that uh, putrefies the bread inside and gives you all those little holes inside your bread. How many people are going to go on a carb-free diet after hearing that? Right? What is that all about? So what they would do after a, they meted a lump of dough that had been leavened, they would take a little bit of it, they would save it, and they would use that leaven piece to leaven the next loaf. And they would just keep doing that on and on. But it was meant to show that sin passed on from person to person to person. Each person born carried on the sin of Adam from the very beginning. To discard the leaven was to mean remove the sin. And what Paul's saying here is that if you allow this sin to continue amongst yourself, like leaven, it will putrefy the whole body. It will begin to erode the health of the body, the holiness of the body from the inside out. Now again, any sin? Well, it seems like it was specifically tailored to this particular young man who had this particular mindset of rebellion against God. But that being said, Paul says it's detrimental to you that you deal with it. You don't want to affect everyone. You don't want it to begin to wither away the entirety of the body. That's what he's saying here. You must deal with it appropriately. And he uses this example to help them understand that. Now giving one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh may have many of you very concerned right now. What are we talking about, Pastor? What is Paul talking about? Paul knew that there was the church that's under the kingdom of God and under the reign of God, and he knew that there was the world that was under the reign of the ruler of this world, which is Satan himself, correct? And to be moved out of the church kicked out of the church for unrepentant sin, would bring that person back under the reign of the one who oversees the world. That was a scary thought for them. It should be a scary thought for us. But it was a scary thought for them. Now what about this whole destruction of the flesh? Do you mean we pull people out and all of a sudden Satan just takes them apart? What is he saying here? Well, you remember the words of Jesus? 
He says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, because it's better that you enter into the kingdom of heaven without sight rather than hell with sight. Or if your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. Because it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God lame than it is to enter hell whole. I think that's what Paul's saying here. Let them see and understand the futility of their sin. Let them understand the consequences of their sin. Let them understand where it's ultimately going to lead them. You sow to the wind, you sow to destruction. You sow to the Spirit, you reap everlasting life. Let them see where it's going to take them. I don't know about you, but sin is devastating people's lives around us, isn't it? I mean, just destroying people's lives. Thinking that they're free, thinking that they're in control of their own destiny. In actuality, they are under the reign of the wicked one and they are going exactly where he would want them to go, down the broad way that ends in destruction. And they're happy as they go along. The reason the Christian life is so difficult for you and I is because we're going upstream. We're going the opposite way. And it's very difficult under those conditions when people begin to see you differently, react to you differently, interact with you differently because you're alive. And they are simply the walking dead. That's what the Bible depicts for us. That's what Paul depicts for us. And lastly, number three, as we close our time together this morning, church discipline is meant to deter sin. For those who continue in sin, Paul instructs the elders in Ephesus to rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may be fearful. The determinant of sin was also displayed when Ananias and Sapphira were struck down by the Holy Spirit after lying to the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 11. How would you like that to happen on a Sunday service? For they had claimed that they had sold a piece of property and given all of the proceeds to the church. They didn't need to. It was discretionary. But they lied about it. They wanted the glory from the, and the attention of the people, so they stated something that was false, and Peter challenged them on it and said, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit, to God? And while Ananias was standing there, he was struck down dead. They carried out his body. Then his wife came in afterwards. She lied in the same way. She was struck down and her body were carried out. I don't know about you, but that would have deterred me from sin going forward. I would have thought twice about ever lying again, wouldn't you? But think about this. You think, man, that's so unfair. That's so radical. The wages of sin is death. It's only eternal life through Jesus Christ. We've looked at the necessity of it. We've looked at the purpose of it. And we'll continue on next week as we look at the reasons for it and the methods of it. Why are we doing this together as a church body? We're doing it because we want to be a healthy church body. We don't believe that we're any better than anybody else. But biblically, as Christians, if church discipline is one of those things that is lacking, 
then we must be honest with ourselves to make sure that in our church, when it is necessary, and only when it is necessary, we would handle it properly. Now, it's very important that the elders of the church know what God commissions us to do, but also you as the congregation. Again, the profile of the person that seems to be in mind here is one who is unwilling to repent of their sin. It's, un, it's one who doesn't see that they are struggling with sin and they are just rebellious against God. They're just rebellious against His Word and they are just going to do their own thing and they want to be part of the church and infect the church with their own personal corruption. That's the type of person we are talking about here. We are certainly not discussing an individual who is simply struggling with an area of their flesh. To you... I say grace, grace, and more grace. Pointing you back to the Word of God, pointing you back to the Spirit of God. You want to overcome the flesh in your life? Feed the Spirit. Feed the Spirit. Let God do that work in you supernaturally, changing you from the inside out. But if sin is going to continue to reign serious, reminded of what Jesus needed to do to overcome it, reminded of what we must do going forward, let us all be conscientious of sin. Because see, our, our world takes sin very lightly, don't they? They dismiss everything. And as time goes on, sure enough, everything that the Bible prohibits will be socially acceptable, right? Right? But we as Christians are under his heavenly authority. And he said that if you love me, keep my commandments. And that's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. This is the beginning of it all. This is where it all starts. But sin is serious before God, folks. And as a church, we want to take sin seriously because we never want to take for granted what Christ did on our behalf, do we? I think about that all the time. What Christ did to allow us once again to interact with God. It's incredible to me that our God would come and subject himself to his own creation, be handled in the manner in which he was, go to the cross, humiliating himself to the point of death on the cross, and then the weight of the world, the sins of the world are placed upon his shoulders The father turns his head, all grows dark. The ground quakes, the rocks split. And then he cries out, it is finished. Father, I now commit my spirit unto you. And he gives his spirit. And the sins of the world at that moment were paid for in its entirety. And do you know how we know that God the Father accepted his sacrifice there on the cross? Because on the third day he rose from the grave. It's done. It's over. And now we can have new life in Jesus Christ. I became a Christian when I was 16. I don't know how old you were. And even though now I am 47, almost 30 years into my Christian life, those 16 years, I feel that I've given the devil enough of my time. 
I don't want to give him any more. I want to live full on for the glory of God and whatever he would have us to do. Sin is serious. Let us take sin seriously. But let us always remember, for those of you who are struggling and may feel condemned, where sin abounds, grace abounds further.